Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and I'm reading from the CSV Bible, and if you're looking at the paper Bibles, I'm on page um, 437. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request and spare my people. This is my desire for my people. And I have been sold to destruction, death and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ashuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs said, there is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Amen. Let's go before the Lord. Um, as we do this, I want to give you an opportunity. Again, as we come together, we come to worship God together. So it's not just people who are on a stage who are proclaiming the goodness of God. This is an opportunity for us to do that as well. So um, I want to just pause and just give you an opportunity to say, God, I praise you for, in one sentence, God, I praise you for what the Lord has done for you this week. I want to give you guys an opportunity to do that. God, I praise you for the victory in Jesus. Amen. 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 Yes, amen. Yes, amen. Amen. Amen, amen. Amen. Mm, amen. 
Yes. Amen. Yes. Amen. Mm, amen. Amen. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Amen. Yes. Amen. Thank you. Yes. And Father, we could go on and on and praise you for your goodness. Thank you. Thank you that you pour out this goodness on us, people who don't deserve it. What we deserve is wrath. And what we deserve is your judgment. But you are a merciful God, a relentless God, a compassionate God who saw people deserving of your judgment, but rather than doing that, you pour out love. And so thank you for that. Lord, as we pray, I think about some of the things that we praise you for. Yes, the sweet baby and Taylor and uh, being here um, with this baby. Praise God for that. I think about the families who are giving birth, who gave birth, especially this week. Um, and thank you for those who are right now pregnant, Lord, the life that you have placed in them. God, we praise you for that. Thank you for those who are in the process of adopting kids, Lord. I pray that you would open the door and make that possible. Um, thank you, Lord Jesus, for every single thing that you have done in our lives, the healing, the protection, the provision, people who've moved here and you've provided jobs for, people who've moved here and you've provided a community for. Uh, God, thank you for that. Lord, as we pray right now, we just want to rest under your word and allow your word to do a work in us. And so God, free us from any distraction, anything that the enemy may try to do to take our minds and our eyes off of what you have for us today. I pray that you would go to war for us, go to war in our hearts, that anything that the enemy is trying to do to block the blessing that you have for us today, that you would fight for us. Thank you. Open our hearts, Lord. Let us be obedient to your word. Let your word encourage us, transform us, correct us where we need to be corrected, and strengthen us. And so we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, Blueprint Church. Um, good morning. My name is Carly, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, and so today we are in Esther chapter 7, right? Esther chapter 7. And so we've been in this series for a couple weeks now, and this chapter is pretty much the climax of the story of Esther. Now, a climax to a story or a climax in a story is usually the turning point in the story where things starts to shift, where things starts to change. And usually, in every story, there's a conflict. And then at some point, the conflict reaches its most intense, its highest point of tension. And then the characters in these uh, stories would have to address this conflict. There's a moment, a defining moment, where the characters have to address these conflict. And depending on how they address this conflict, we see 
the outcome of the story, right? The climax is the most significant moment in a story. And this is why whenever you're watching a movie during the climax, this is when the music starts getting louder, right? Your heart starts pounding and you're sitting on the edge of your seat because you want to know how the story is going to play out. Does the character win in the end? Do they lose? Do they become a champion and a hero? Do they get married and live happily ever after, right? And so we want to know how the story plays out. But notice that in all those movies and stories and things that we like to read, at the end, the main character, the protagonist, always win in the end, right? Most of the time, they win in the end. Because most of these stories, when we see the defining moment of these characters, right, we want to see how they defeat the conflict. We want to see how they defeat the conflict because we want to identify with some of these characters in these stories. One of the stories or movie I like, I love, right? We talked about the Avengers, right? I mean, that's one of the ones that you have to watch. But another one I'll add to your list is The Karate Kid, right? For some of you who are in college right now, you probably don't know The Karate Kid. The one that you probably know is the one with Jaden Smith. Don't watch that. That's whack. The one I'm talking about is with Daniel and Mr. Miyagi, right? And so in the movie, The Karate Kid, right, I'll just give you a quick summary of it. Daniel moves to a new town, and then he joins this new school, and then he starts getting bullied, and then so Daniel meets this little old guy, Mr. Miyagi, who teaches him how to do karate. And then so Daniel, eventually, he enters into a karate match. And then in this karate match, we start seeing Daniel winning rounds. And then he gets to the championship round. And then when he gets to the championship round, he has to fight Johnny, right? Johnny, who's this decorated karate champ. And so he gets to this championship round, and he's like tagging Johnny. He's beating Johnny. And then Johnny sees that he's losing. And so Daniel goes for a kick. Johnny grabs his leg, and he breaks Daniel's leg. And so now Daniel's on the ground, and he's like, I can't go on anymore. And then Mr. Miyagi comes to him, and he does this little magic trick and touch the leg. And then so he says, Daniel, get up. You can do it. And so Daniel gets up, and this is his defining moment. Daniel gets up, and he's like on one, one leg. And then Johnny's coach says, sweep the leg, right? Sweep the leg. And so now Johnny comes, and Daniel's balancing on one leg. This is his defining moment, right? He has courage now, right, to face an impossible task. And so now Daniel is balancing on one leg, and Johnny comes to sweep the leg. And then Daniel does one this little, little, little kick, right, that he, t Mr. Miyagi kind of taught him. Like, Daniel's remembering this, right, as he's standing there, he's remembering Mr. Miyagi taught him, like, this little kick. And then so he jumps and he kicks Johnny and he knocks him out. And Daniel wins. And he becomes the champion. This was his defining moment that changed the rest of his story. And this is why we love movies like that. We love Daniel because we want to identify with him. So when we have a bully, we do this and they think we know how to do karate, right? But it doesn't work. We still get beat up, right? But those movies have these defining moments that changes the character's story, right? Okay, so you may not like karate movies, right? Like my wife, you probably like these romantic, sappy movies, right? 
And so, but all of them have the same element, right? It's always the same. So you have this woman who's in love with the guy, and then this guy is kind of like, I'm not sure. And so she's like waiting for this guy to like realize she's the one. And then this guy doesn't realize it. And she's like, all right, this is my defining moment. I just have to move on with my life, right? And then always she gets a job and she has to move across the country, <laughs> right? And so she get this defining moment where she has courage. She's like, all right, I've been waiting for him. He's not doing anything. He's not moving. So I just got to go on with my life. And so she gets in a taxi and this taxi is taking her to the airport. <laughs> Every movie is like that. And so as she right now is facing her defining moment, she makes a decision, a difficult decision, right? And now this guy, the scene pans out to this guy where this guy is like reflecting and everything starts coming together. Oh man, I am about to lose this girl. She's the woman of my life. And so this is his defining moment where he has courage to pursue the girl. And then so he puts on his clothes and now he chased literally her taxi. And so now he's weaving in and out of traffic to try to find her, right? And he's looking in every taxi cab to see where is she. And then always she gets stuck in traffic, right? She's stuck in traffic under a light and he's looking through all the windows trying to find her and then he finally sees her and he's like, I love you. And then she's like, what? And he's like, I love you, please stay. And she's like, what? And he's like, put down the window, you know? And so she finally puts down the window and he's like, I love you, please stay. And then she gets out the car in the middle of traffic, hug each other and spin around. And then this is their defining moment, right? And then for all the women in the room, I look over and I see my wife and all the women, they're like crying, right? <laughs> and then so for us as guys, we're like, yo, you knew it was going to end that way. You knew. But again, these defining moments changed the narrative, changed the direction of the story because they had to make a difficult decision. They had to make a difficult decision, right? And so we see... Those moments, those defining moments are what changes, right, our narrative, changes our story. When the characters, when we build up the courage to address the conflict, and when we address the conflict, it changes, it shifts the direction of our story. It shifts the direction of our lives. Listen, every single one of us has a defining moment that will change the direction of your life. Every single one of us. Every single one of us have a defining moment that would change the direction of your future, that would change the direction of your marriage, that would change the direction of your family, your relationship, and even your destiny. And these defining moments are times in our lives where we have to face difficult choices, difficult situation that requires great courage. And you are probably feeling the climax of your story right now. You're probably living in the tension, and that tension is intensifying. Your defining moment could be right now where you change the outcome of your story, but it requires courage to make some difficult choices. 
And so defining moments requires a willingness to do some things that are difficult but necessary. And so this is what we're going to talk about in Esther chapter 7. What is your defining moment? And how will you handle your defining moment? Will you have the courage to make those decisions that God is calling you to make that can change the directions of your life? Or will you miss that defining moment? So Esther chapter 7 opens up with the scene where Esther, the king, and Haman are all in one room, right? And so Haman and the king are having a good time. They're cracking jokes. But then Esther's heart is pounding. She's sitting on the edge of her seat because today is the day of her execution, right? And today is the day where her family, all of the Jewish people will be executed. But then Haman, right? Haman, um, who, remember, right? This was the guy who was, uh, who, who, who persuaded the king to write this law to kill all these Jews. And you see Haman in, in this room with Esther and the king having a good time. I want you to imagine this. Could you imagine sitting in this room, Esther sitting in this room with someone who is planning to murder her, planning to kill her and her family? And they're smiling. They're drinking wine. They're enjoying themselves, having a good time. Right? Esther was not comfortable. She was not having a good time. She didn't have peace. She was carrying a burden. And this is why in verse 1 it says, The king and Haman came to this feast with Esther, the king, and once again, the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Esther, like, whatever you ask, I will give it to you. Whatever you seek, even half of the kingdom will be yours. So this king looked at Esther and thought, Esther, why are you not enjoying yourself? Right? Why are you not enjoying? Everyone is having a good time, but you seem to have a burden. What's on your mind and what's on your heart? Everyone is having a good time But what's your burden? What's keeping you from enjoying all that I have provided you? What's keeping you from enjoying this feast? What's keeping you from enjoying this blessing? What's keeping you from enjoying my peace? What's causing you to lose hope? What's causing you to lose your faith? Right? What's causing you to lose joy? What's causing you from enjoying the king? And so... This was a very pivotal question, and it's the same question that we need to pause and reflect on. What's causing you from enjoying the king? What's causing you from enjoying the king? What are some of the burdens? What are some of the challenges? What are some of the sins in our lives that's hindering us from fully enjoying the goodness of God, fully enjoying the life with the king? What's causing you from enjoying the king? And so notice, this is the third time that the king asked Esther this question. Because verse 2, it says, once again, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to the half of the kingdom, will be done. 
Three times this king gave Esther an opportunity to confess to him, to come to him, to lay her burdens down before him. Three times this king asked Esther to confess. Esther's confession, her courage to expose her heart and to expose herself to come clean to the king will set the stage for what the rest of her life would look like. And not just her life, but the life of her family. And so her confession was her defining moment. Her confession was her defining moment for deliverance and the deliverance of her people. Your confession, our confession is our deliverance. Confession is the defining moment for our freedom. And listen, I think that's one of the reasons why the enemy uses shame and guilt to keep us silent, right? Because he wants us to stay in bondage, because he knows there's freedom in confession. And this is what John says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, to free us, to deliver us from all unrighteousness, from all of our bondages, from all of our past, from all of our mistakes, from all of our sins. He is faithful. He is faithful. And that means that he is not a man that he should lie. And so when the king says to Esther, when the king asks, Esther, what's your burden? Ask me and I will do. Our king is faithful. He will not lie. In verse 3, we see Esther's confession. But before we look at Esther's confession, I want to pause to look at how persistent the king was to pursue Esther's confession. How persistent, the persistence of the king. Notice how the king never gave up on Esther, right? Notice how the king was so persistent in asking Esther three times to confess and then constantly met with rejection. And he never gave up. And this is the great irony in this story, in this chapter, because this was not typical of this king. This was not typical of this king to ask and be denied, right? But we see how this king relentlessly pursued Esther and told her, and listen, you ask, I can give you anything you want. I can do whatever it is that you need me to do. Over and over, he asked Esther, and over and over, Esther refused. This was not typical of this king. Refusing this king wasn't an option. Because we notice in the past how this king could be very impulsive, right? You remember how quickly he got rid of Vashti? Like, when he invited Vashti to come to this dinner party, and Vashti was like, nah, I'm good. He got, away. He, got, he got rid of her really quickly. This king was very impulsive. This king had a character that demanded unwavering, unwavering submission to his authority. And whatever this king asked for, he got it. But now he is asking Esther for her confession, and she is refusing, like Queen Vashti. But he still pursued Esther. 
in the past, we've seen how this king can be very intolerant, right? He didn't tolerate disrespect. Remember how he felt disrespected by Queen Vashti? And then he got rid of her, and then he found himself another queen. And so this king had a character that demanded total obedience. He didn't tolerate any type of resistance. And so we see Esther has been resisting, confessing to him, putting him off, but he still pursued Esther. In the past, again, we've seen how this king could be very impatient. And this king had a character that didn't tolerate delays. And so if he commanded something, he wanted it to be done right now. And then so twice he's asking Esther to tell me what's on your heart, to confess to me your burden. Tell me how I can help you. And twice we see Esther is hesitating to fulfill his commands. But then he still pursued Esther. How many times have we refused and rejected our king? When he calls us to confess, when he calls us to repent, when he calls us to lay our burdens at his feet, he calls us to himself, but we reject him over and over again, but then he doesn't give up on us, right? And we see in so many ways, this king has been putting his reputation on the line for Esther, relentlessly pursuing her while constantly being met with rejection. How shameful he would have looked to his empire if people were to find out. And so this king was willing to sacrifice his pride and endure shame for his bride. This was an uncommon love that this king had for Esther. An uncommon love to be patient, long-suffering, waiting for her. An uncommon love to be compassionate, willing to understand where she's at and giving her time. A willing to set aside his strict nature, willing to show grace. An uncommon love to be relentless, never giving up on her. And listen, People may give up on us if they really knew what our confession was. If they really knew who we were. If we really exposed to them our hearts. They probably would not show grace. They probably would not show mercy. They probably would not show compassion. But we have a king who has an uncommon love for us, right? A love that is unwavering a love that's not fragile, a love that is strong, a love that is resilient, a love that could handle our flaws and our imperfection, yet still remains constant and faithful, right? And so I believe the reason why, listen, I believe the reason why we don't confess is not because we don't believe that God is faithful. I think the reason why we don't confess is because we don't believe that he's safe, we don't believe that he's safe. So it's like yesterday, my kids did something, and I'm trying to get down to the bottom of it. I'm trying to figure out what happened. So I said, hey, guys, who did this? Confess. And no one wanted to talk. And so I'm like getting mad, right? And so the madder I get, the more they're like, I'm not confessing, right? And I just found out yesterday that they're scared of me, right? I'm like, okay. That's, 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 I, felt, I felt bad, right? 
But here's the thing. But the moment I say, hey, guys, you're not going to get in trouble. Everyone starts talking. <laughs> right? Everyone starts talking. The moment they felt safe, they confess. I believe the reason why, one of the reasons why we don't confess is because we don't believe that God's safe. We don't confess because we are afraid. We believe that God is not safe, and so we hide. And so in the story, multiple times the king tried to call Esther out of hiding. Multiple times he tried to create this safe space for her, to make it safe for her to open up, to bring to him her burdens and fears and struggles. Multiple times we're seeing how this king has given her this opportunity to just come out of hiding, to come clean. I want to hear your prayers. I want to listen to your struggles. I want to offer you comfort and guidance to be your refuge. But we have a distorted view that our king is unsafe. A distorted view, maybe we've done too much for him to show grace. Maybe we've done too much for him to show compassion. Maybe we've done too much for him to show mercy. And so we have this distorted view that our sins are too much for him to carry, right? But then I think the reality is our fear to confess is really not because we believe that God is unsafe. I believe the fear that we have is that we're more afraid of facing the truth about ourselves. We're more afraid of seeing that we are desperately sinful. We're more afraid of confronting our own brokenness and our deep imperfection. And so because of that, we're afraid to confess And so our confessing to God will show and expose how desperately sinful we are in need of a savior, right? A savior. And realizing that could be a very humbling and very uncomfortable thing when he exposes us. And listen, yes, God is unsafe, He is unsafe. His holiness makes him unsafe. And because his holiness exposes, what his holiness does is expose how desperate we are, how desperately sinful we are and deserving of death. But then Jesus makes this unsafe king approachable. And so, yes, next to his holiness, we are the worst human beings, Next to his holiness, there's nothing good in us. Next to his holiness, we deserve wrath. But the uncommon love of the holy God is to love us unconditionally. Willing to put the shame, willing to put the shame, his pride, willing to sacrifice, willing to sacrifice so we wouldn't have to hide anymore. Right? And so Jesus was willing to put to shame, to be willing to be put to shame on the cross, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and we can approach God with confidence, right? And so verse three, and we're only on verse three, right? And so verse three, 
we see Esther's confession. And so her confession was her defining moment. It was time for Esther to come clean. It was time for her to expose everything she was struggling with, everything that was on her heart. It was time for her to give to the king her burdens. And so right now, this is her defining moment where her life now depends on this moment where today is the day of her salvation, right? Today is the day of her healing. Today is the day that she might be set free. And so today is the day where she has to fight for her family. Today is the day where she has to fight for her legacy. Today is the day that she has to fight for her future. And this defining moment is Esther's first step towards God's redemption, where God will redirect her path from destruction to a path of restoration and transformation. So today is her defining moment. And I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. Confession is not meant to harm us. Confession is not meant to harm us. So when we confess our sins, when we confess our struggles and our burdens and our fears and our doubts to God, when we come clean and expose to him our hearts, right, to the king and stop hiding, God doesn't hold that against us, right? And he doesn't use that against us. Because confession is meant to help us. Confession is meant to deliver us. It's meant to remind us that God's desire is to bring healing and deliverance, not condemnation. So confession is not meant to harm us. So Esther needed deliverance, but the pathway to her deliverance was her honesty. Was her honesty. I want to ask you this question. Where are you right now? Could you be honest with where you are? What do you need from the king? Are you carrying a burden right now that's too great for you to carry, that's crushing you? David said in Psalm 32, verse 3 to 6, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long for day and night your hands was heavy on me and my strength was drained as the summer heat but then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity and I say I confess I confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave my guilt you forgave the guilt of my sins And then listen to what David says. Therefore, and I want you to hear this for yourself. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to him immediately. Are you carrying a burden that's crushing you? Will you be honest and come out of hiding and confess? The king says, come to me, Esther. Come to me. See, your turning point, our turning point is our confession. Your confession is admitting that, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. And this confession will change your story and will change your life. And we see again in verse 3, Esther's confession. She tells the king, if I have found favor with you, king, if it pleases the king, grant me my life. That is my petition. 
and spare my people. That is my request. So Esther tells the king, I just want to live. I want to live and I want my people to live. Is that your petition? Is that the cry, your request of your heart? I want to live, not just to exist, but to live. And that's what God wants for us, not just to survive, but to experience the fullness of life that he has to offer, right? So Jesus died so that we can be free from the change of sin that leads us, right, to death. But he died so that we can be free to lead us to an abundant life, right? A life where we are experiencing God's hope and joy and purpose, and not to be weighed down by guilt and shame. I want to live, not just survive. Abundant life is what God wants to give to us. Abundant life is the life that Jesus has for us. And it's a life that's filled with joy, a life that's filled with purpose. It's a life where we experience God and we enjoy him a life where we are savoring intimacy with him and we are growing in our knowledge of him. See, our confession is that turning point to a different type of life, right? And so Esther tells the king, king, I I just wanna live. I just wanna live. And then we see in verse five, the king asks Esther, the king asks Esther, who's threatening your life, right? Who is this and where is the one who devises such a scheme? And then Esther says, the adversary, the enemy, is this evil Haman. Could you imagine Haman hearing that? It's like, wait, who, me? (laughs) It's like, right, can you imagine the moment that Haman heard that, right? Esther's life was in danger, and then we see how quickly the king rose in anger to act on her behalf, right? And so we see how God is not a God who just delays when we cry out, but we see in the story how the king got up and then he left the room and then he went into his garden palace. He rose up in anger and then he went away. Now, it may seem like, or it may felt like, have felt like there's a delay because the king just walked away but the king was preparing the perfect plan and the perfect opportunity to reverse the situation in Esther's life. And so when we confess our sins and when we confess our struggles to God, his plan is to bring about full redemption, which involves taking what was meant to destroy us and transforming it into a source of victory. He turns our weaknesses and failures into an opportunity to showcase his redeeming love. Just like the cross, we see this. What was meant to destroy Jesus and bring him shame was the very thing that God used to showcase his redeeming power, right? His redeeming power to give us hope, his redeeming power to give us life, his redeeming power to save humanity, And so your story and your past, no matter how broken it may be, God's power of redemption 
has incredible capacity to turn your story around. And that's what redemption is. God's power of redemption brings healing. It brings restoration. It brings purpose out of all of our brokenness. God's power of redemption can turn around whatever is broken. God's power, listen, could turn around your life. It could turn around the situation in your life. It can turn around your marriage. It can turn, turn around your family. It can turn around anything that is broken in your life. God's power of redemption, even those things that may seem like it's too late, there are no limit. There are limitless possibilities of God's redemptive work in our lives to offer hope and to offer us a fresh start. And so we see what's so amazing about this chapter is how the king reversed what was meant for harm, right? God can change any circumstance, any person, any heart, no matter how hopeless it may seem. Look at this reversal in verse 6. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. And just as the king returned to the palace garden, to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Esther, at one point, was terrified of Haman. And we see this reversal. Now Haman is terrified of Esther. Esther, at one point, was begging for her life. Now we see this reversal where Haman is begging for his life. Haman, at one point, was planning something terrible for Esther. Now we see the king planning something terrible for Haman. Haman, at one point, wanted all the Jewish people to bow before him. Now he's bowing before Esther. That's how God can radically restore, radically reverse whatever situation is in your life. That's the power of his redemption. Amazing. And so just like that, we see how God reshapes Esther's life in his providence. And so nothing about what you're going through, nothing about your past is a waste. Nothing. Every experience Every trial, every failure plays a role in reshaping your life into a powerful testimony, reshaping your life into what God intends for you. And so we see how God will reshape your life. And we see how this king got up to go fight for Esther to reshape her life. And then all we see Esther is doing right now is reclining. She's being still. See, at one point, her heart was pounding. At one point, she was sitting at the edge of her seat. And now we see she's reclining. In verse 8, the king comes back and he sees Haman falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. When God fights for us, all we need to do is be still. Be still. We see the significant transformation in Esther's demeanor. Initially, she was afraid, and now she's confident. 
because the king is fighting her battles. When we trust God, he gives us peace, even in the most challenging situation. And then he says to us, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I'm fighting for you. Be still and know that you're not alone. Be still and know the battle is not yours, but it's the Lord. Be still and know that I am with you and not against you. Be still and know that I am your banner of victory. Be still and know that I am your refuge and your strength. Be still and know that I am always with you. And so this is what happens when we confess. Our role is not to work out our salvation. Our role is not to work out our deliverance. Our role is to trust and be still. The king gives rest. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter eleven twenty-eight: Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and tired, come to me. All of you who have a burden that you can't carry, come to me, and I will give you rest. And so you see how we rest because we know that God is at work behind the scenes, orchestrating a divine plan for our good and for his glory. And so we get in verse 8, the king comes back and sees Haman falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Would you actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left his mouth, they covered his head. Right? And so there was a rule in the palace that you couldn't get close to the queen. And so now Haman is at her feet begging for his life. And so the king thought that Haman was trying to take advantage of his wife, to violate his wife. And then he says, you dare to touch my bride. You dare to violate my bride. And we see how God has a jealous love. This king had this jealous love for his bride in the same way that God has a jealous love for us, a jealous love that would go through great length to show us how much we are loved. You dare to touch my bride. A jealous love that would sacrifice not just half of my kingdom, but a jealous love that would give his only son to redeem us. You dare to touch my bride. A jealous love that would be willing to lose his life so that we can find ours, a jealous love that drove him to the cross. And we see, just like this king, God has this jealous love to fight for us because he wants us. God wants you, and he'll fight for you. And because he wants our hearts completely devoted to him, he'll fight for you. Anything that gets in the way of that, God will fight against it. And listen, God will even fight against us. God will even fight against us. If God wants us and he's calling us to confess and we continue to refuse, God may expose us so that he can save us because that's how much he wants you. He wants you. 
And so sometimes God exposes us. And that is his sign of grace because he doesn't want us to continue to destroy ourselves. That's how much God is jealous for us. And then we see in verse 9 and 10, Haman is taken away. And so he's actually executed on that same gallow that he built to destroy the Jewish people. Right? Harbona, one of the king's eunuch, said, Hey, king, <laughs> there's actually a gallow 75 feet tall at Haman's house. All right? It's kind of like a snitch, but it's okay. Um, and then so Haman built this gallow for Mordecai. And then so the king said, hang him on it. And so they hang Haman on the gallow that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the king, listen to what it says, then the king's anger subsided. The anger of the king subsided, meaning the anger of the king was satisfied. The anger of the king needed to be satisfied. And so Esther's confession led to the king's anger, and the king's anger was not satisfied until there was deliverance, until the enemy was vanquished, until the enemy was finished. And so God's wrath against us was not satisfied until Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Right? All of our sins, all of our failures, all of our past, our confession, when it was nailed on the cross with Jesus, the wrath of God, the anger that God had towards us was finished, was satisfied. We were free. We were delivered. And this is why our confession is the defining moment in our lives. There's a rising moment. There's a rising conflict. There's a rising tension between us and God. A rising judgment. There's an appointed day for all of us to be executed, to die, because of this rising climactic moment. There's a great conflict with God, and we are his enemy. We are the Haman in this story. And if we don't confess, we will be destroyed in God's anger, and nothing can deliver us from this anger. But the turning point in our lives, the turning point in all of our story is when we confess to Jesus, save me. I want to live. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I am desperate for you. Jesus, turn my life around. Jesus, I'm willing to make the difficult decisions that are necessary for change. When we confess, that's the turning point in our lives. The turning point in all of our story is when we say, Jesus, I need you. Will you have the courage today to make that request? Will you have the courage today to trust him and give your life to him, 
to give your life completely to him and be willing to do whatever is necessary for change, regardless of how hard it may be. Today is your defining moment. Father, thank you for how uncommon your love is towards us. Thank you for being so jealous for us and that you rose from your throne room, that you came to this earth to fight the battle that we couldn't fight for ourselves. Thank you that you were the great king that was willing to say, do you dare to touch my people? And thank you for being the great king that took upon himself our burdens to give us rest. And so, God, I pray that you would give all of us, including me, the courage to come clean, the courage to be honest with where I am, and to truly believe that it's not to harm, but it's to help, it's to deliver. Give me the courage to believe. Give us the courage to believe that you are a good God who loves us relentlessly, pursuing us relentlessly, and would not give up on us. And all we need to do is find the courage to say Jesus safe. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday. Thank you.